You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. It's Victoria Brazel here, and today we're doing another of our collaborative episodes with the journal Advances in Simulation. And we've turned our attention to thinking about simulation for testing healthcare spaces, facilities, and processes. And this is largely because Advances in Simulation has featured two articles on this topic over the last couple of months. And so I'm very fortunate to be joined by a couple of the authors of those articles. Uh, Just before we get into those, uh, just a reminder about Advances in Simulation. Uh, This is a open access simulation journal at www.advancesinsimulation.biomedcentral.com or you can follow them on Twitter at Advance in simulation. Uh, And the editor-in-chief who's uh, recently departed, Deborah Nestel, many thanks to her for her fabulous work. And Ryan Bridges is currently the uh, acting editor-in-chief. So, but as I said, today we're going to talk about simulation in the specific example of healthcare facility testing. And the articles I'll introduce shortly, but uh, before we do that, two of the authors. So uh, the first of those is Nora Coleman. How are you, Nora? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting us to do this podcast. We're really excited to be here. Fantastic. Now, do you want to give the listeners a bit of an idea about you and what you do in simulation? Sure. Um, So I work at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and I am a pediatric intensivist. Um, My simulation passions are in resuscitative science, and I've also been um, recently doing more simulation work in healthcare design. And uh, so I'm going to just give the headline now. So uh, Nora was the first author in a paper titled Simulation-Based Clinical Systems Testing for Healthcare Spaces from Intake Through Implementation. And uh, this is really quite a comprehensive look at the approaches, a systemic approach by which to conduct simulation-based clinical systems testing. Uh, So we'll get into that shortly. But our other guest today is Sue Barnes. How are you, Sue? I'm doing great, thanks. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do in SIM? Uh, And uh, we'll get into your article as well. Absolutely. Um, And uh, thank you for the invite. Um, I'm the simulation lead for the ESIM Provincial Simulation Program up in Alberta, Canada here. Um, I am an RN by background and I have been working actually um, in simulation. So my, my nursing background was 22 years in the surgical suites throughout Canada. But the last 10 years, I've been uh, focusing on teaching medical education using simulation in all practices, areas of uh, healthcare. Um, within this little uh, last little bit and what the article is going to go into is, is that we've been really focusing on the, the healthcare design aspects and using simulation around that. So hope to explain a little bit more for that. All right. Sounds good. So uh, as I said, just to sort of give a little background to these two articles. Uh, so I'll start with the one that Sue was just describing. So the title of this paper is Commissioning Simulations to Test New Healthcare Facilities, a Proactive and Innovative Approach to Healthcare System Safety. And uh, listeners, this is a case study that describes really hundreds of simulations involving more than 200 staff, which described the simulation program for the opening of the Southern Health Campus in Alberta, a 300-bed facility, and to use the words in the article, to evaluate functionality, assess system processes, and identify areas of potential patient safety concern. So that sort of case study really took our uh, 
uh, notice. And then shortly uh, around the same time, Nora and her group uh, published a paper which really took a step back to say, well, there's many of these examples going on. Can we come up with some guidelines, some consistent approaches, some best practices that we'd like to share? And so again, to use the words of their paper, uh, they described a systemic approach by which to conduct simulation-based clinical systems testing and provides documentation and evaluation tools in order to develop, implement and evaluate a newly built environment to identify latent safety threats and system inefficiencies. So uh, quite the mouthful, but also quite the project. So maybe you can kick us off here, Nora. I mean, what's the problem? Why do we actually need simulation to test our facilities and processes? That's a great question. And I think a lot of questions that we've been asked as we've tried to publish some of this work. Um, I think the biggest thing to think about in healthcare delivery is really just how complex patient care is. Um, and people interact with their environment or other team members, technology and equipment in really dynamic ways. And when um, you're doing traditional facility planning, teams are asked to really imagine how work would be done in the space. Um, and what we know from enough um, design literature out there is work as imagined doesn't actually equate to work as it's done um, because it's really hard or even impossible to imagine all of the possibilities and ways that people interact with their environment. Um, processes might not transition well into a new space or frontline staff might actually interact with their design or the environment in ways that were unintended by the team. And so simulation really shifts from work as imagined to work it as it's done um, and gives teams an opportunity to actively um, experience care delivery and so that they can identify identify flaws within the space or accidents waiting to happen and so that those changes and risks can be mitigated before any patient is exposed to errors. Yeah, so what you're saying is despite the best intentions and despite uh, diverse teams, we can't always anticipate the issues that are going to come up. But the other thing, and I think we're going to come back to this as well, you're not just testing the system. Part of even doing that process is orienting and preparing the humans who are going to work in that environment. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So part of it is also transition planning and helping people orient to their new space and kind of get a feel for how things are really going to be different than they were in the old space that they worked in. Excellent. Well, Sue, um, I imagine you had some similar ideas about what the problem was. Uh, why did you feel like in your example, you needed simulation to test your facility? Well, we had an incredible opportunity to, um, to open a 300 bed facility, it was consistent in both inpatient and outpatient clinics. Um, the hospital site was going to support all areas of medicine. So uh, surgery, intensive care environments, obstetrics, mental health, outpatient clinics, and along with the clinical support uh, services and people that were needed to run a large scale hospital site. Um, for unique, unique and for our province, a once in a lifetime opportunity, it was to have new staff and physicians come for orientation and training while not being tied to a legacy site um, where care still needed to be provided for patients. So we really had all of their time. Um, so when we scheduled them for simulations or for their orientation and training, they, they actually were able to commit to uh, large portions of time. Um, also is, is that when we actually opened, teams were actually forming and coming together for the first time from other city hospitals and provinces and national hires. 
they all had different backgrounds and um, what we noticed were varied level of experience. Um, we had a large number of newly graduated professionals entering the workforce for uh, the first time. Um, we used a, a phased approach to opening the departments and clinics and uh, not having a full service hospital to about a year and a half after the first patient contact. So I think this is pretty important because part of the problem that people see is how long is this corridor and does this trolley fit through here and do the lights turn on there? But I think you both identified very early on that there are so many things to deal with relationships and to deal with uh, the staff who are going to be working there and indeed in some cases uh, patients, consumers and others, but really thinking about how are the people going to interact with the space and indeed with each other. Uh, the other thing that might be useful for us to know before we get into the SIM stuff, uh, Sue, is you, this obviously came on the back of having a pretty well-organised simulation program across your province. Did you want to sort of give us a sort of backdrop to uh, how that's important and then what that meant in terms of actually deciding to use SIM? Uh, and yeah, no, good point. Um, so Alberta, um, in uh, Alberta Health Services within uh, Canada, it's um, it's a one um, health healthcare authority for the entire province. So really, uh, those uh, 650 hospital care sites. Um, so with within that, we actually underneath the quality and safety uh, banner of Alberta Health Services, we have uh, a, um, a dedicated provincial simulation program that has. Um, at the time, um, 16 um, actual uh, consultants or site-based and provincial-based uh, people that they specialize in doing simulation training. So um, when we opened up this facility, um, we were actually um, very fortunate to get a uh, simulation consultant and a simulation technician. And the technician really responsible for the, with the biomedical background uh, was really dedicated to using and creating simulation with leadership and key stakeholders um, and then a team of uh, people that uh, we trained uh, to become uh, simulationists to able to support their different clinical areas. Yeah, so there's something in that, isn't it? You already had a system with a fair degree of capability in the modality. Uh, so sim wasn't a new thing. You kind of knew what you were doing in using it for education and other purposes and no doubt had done some of this kind of work as well. And so it was interesting how you decided to set it up. So uh, it seems like you had one lead for a lot of the uh, coordinating work, the social capital work, as it were, and then someone who really had a lot of the logistics work. Uh, I imagine that wasn't accidental either. No, but definitely targeted. Um, what we recognize from our past experiences is it just having um, that one point of contact um, for the for the site uh, and able to build uh, the concept and, and get the buy-in early from uh, key leadership so that the, um, you know, we move beyond the, uh, the traditional occupancy toolbox of scavenger hunting, vendor training and uh, general orientation and, and just convincing them that, you know, they needed to provide an interactive hands-on um, provider readiness by integrating uh, patient care and simulations uh, for testing the environment. Yes, well, that's probably good to sort of get into a little bit of the weeds here then because your uh, article describes a bit about how you did this uh, in terms of hundreds of simulations involving over 2,000 uh, healthcare staff and across a range of areas. So we've got emergency department, ICU, medical inpatients, pedi pediatric outpatients. Uh, so I would encourage people to read that um, because then with each of these, you also describe the lessons learned. But I was just wondering for the Simulcast listeners, would you like to sort of pick out one 
uh, area as an example and sort of go through a bit of the detail about what you did and then what you found? Yeah, for sure. Um, what I mentioned earlier that uh, we used a, a phased opening for uh, open uh, for the actual opening of the hospital, and that meant that uh, various clinical areas and departments um, opened at different times, and therefore the the support for the different areas that opened. So really, when we opened this large scale, the size of a commercial mall, really, um, a hospital, it was more of an outpatient clinic. And so one of the first ones that uh, we opened was our diagnostic imaging department. And that had um, x-rays, ultrasounds, CT, MRIs, and it basically covered about one third of our main floor of the site. Um, At the time, um, we didn't have an active emergency department until four months after the opening of of the ambulatory clinics. And so our actual process at that time was a 911 response for any emergency medical services. So we decided to run a deteriorating patient in the the actual uh, DI department in the CT, and uh, we called, uh, we tested the process. So we actually worked with uh, community and uh, the 911 operators and the actual ambulance uh, services and um, actually called the 911 uh, response. And one of the things is as we're doing CPR on this patient that it was about 20, 25 minutes before uh, the EMS providers actually got to us. And what we had found out in the debrief is, is that uh, EMS actually showed up to the ambulance bays, which were not commissioned at the time. So they actually didn't know uh, to show up to the front doors, even though that message was given to the 911 operators. Um, so we did had lots of great lessons learned from that. Um, the debriefings identified like a knowledge barrier in tours. So we then uh, proactively did orientations for all EMS providers uh, in the following months. We looked at uh, role clarity. And that was also recognized that uh, protection services personnel was an important way, uh, wayfinder for the EMS once uh, they arrived on site. We also looked at supplies for support, supporting a deteriorating patient. Um, they created airway kits or red bags. They um, did AED training versus the crash cart that a lot of hospital personnel are used to. Uh, and then we also discussed what the capacity was to respond. Um, so they created first aid teams and they were identified every day. We, um, we did have some advanced um, care practitioners on site preparing for their areas, but they weren't always available. And so we never wanted to um, heavily rely on them. So. I think that was one of the, the highlights of our, our opening. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of just tangible, practical things which make a lot of sense to healthcare staff who sometimes deal with systems that uh, they find not so user-friendly. So I think we're very attracted to the kind of work that you're talking about. They might seem like small things, but we know they can add up to very big things and get in the way of the best care that we can provide. Uh, well, Nora, I might turn my attention to you now because uh, I suppose uh, Sue's example and Alberta is one of many that we have now seen published around the place, but your paper sort of takes a little bit of a step back and you've got a diverse group of authors trying to, I guess, try and make sense and offer advice uh, for best practice. But tell us, what's the background to the paper? Why did you write it? And then how did the group of you all come together to do that? Um, So I think, like you mentioned, um, there's been a few centers that have published some work on um, using process testing um, and system integration simulations prior to moving into a new facility. Um, And so we were embarking on opening a new outpatient center as part of a 
large medical campus um, that will be opening in 2025. Um, and so we required some help from um, the group at Seattle Children's in Texas. So we're really thankful to Jen Reed and um, Kim St- Stone and um, Jen Arnold for um, and Kara from Texas Children's for helping us to uh, figure out how do we even go about doing process testing? Because when we did this project, this was our first experience with doing this kind of work. Um, And so when we finished the project, we realized that there was a lot of times we had to almost reinvent the wheel with some of the um, tools that we used, um, the FMEA reports, we kind of reinvented and modified. Um, And so we really just wanted to provide institutions with a streamlined approach um, so that people didn't have to reinvent the wheel as they were embarking on a new project as well. Um, And we felt like um, a streamlined approach and having some tools that other um, systems can use really would help to optimize time and resources um, to make sure that um, testing objectives were met um, and so that other teams didn't have to recreate some of the same things that we spent a lot of time working on and um, editing. Yeah, so you certainly weren't just writing an opinion piece here. This really meant something to you because you had your own project going on uh, and in order to do that you drew in others in terms of collaboration and advice and uh, very nicely for the rest of us uh, documented what you did and and I suppose a few conclusions about how people should approach it. And and just for listeners, I'm going to uh, just give a very brief summary of some of the things that you talk about in your table one in the paper, uh, which gives a suggested timeline for folks who might be using simulation for this purpose. So thinking about stakeholder engagement, actually doing a needs assessment and some process mapping, designing scenarios, and each of these phases actually taking a number of months, uh, preparing the logistics of the simulation, and then actually implementing over days, weeks, months, however long and whatever the scope of your project is. But then also having and I really liked this about your article as well, pretty robust tools for thinking about how you evaluate, report and follow up because obviously it's great to discover problems but it's not much good if we don't have systems by which we actually uh, address them. So, again, I'm just sort of interested in the writing as much as the content. Uh, Did you have much disagreement as you sort of thought about what you should do or did it all come together? Uh, This is a really interesting question. So I think um, this is... This uh, paper kind of summarizes even the little intricacies and the ways that we did things differently. Um, I would say that the overall approach, the use of FMEA is something that the other groups, um, Texas Children's and Seattle had used. And so we incorporated that into this paper, but our FMEA was a little bit different than and modified from the um, initial versions. Um, And I think the biggest thing that we approached differently was probably debriefing. Um, And so each each um, different area or different group, um, us and Texas Children's and the group at Seattle debriefed a little bit differently. And those that were included in the debriefing were different. So some centers um, debriefed with just the participants and the observers separately. Um, Some did interval debriefing and then a final debriefing at the end, uh, where we, um, during our project, just just did interval debriefing, and we included both the stakeholders and observer group as well as the participants in one debrief. Um, And the other thing that we that we did differently was use these evidence-based safe design principles to really anchor our testing objectives. Um, and that is something that's kind of unique to all of the 
papers that have been published so far. Yes, there was a lot of acronyms in your paper and uh, I was keeping up with them. But one I wanted to go a little deep on, and I do want to come back to debriefing because I think this is really interesting. But the FMEA, now this is an acronym that not all simulation providers will be familiar with. It's one of the uh, four additional files in the article for listeners. It's worth having a look at. So this is a, you've, you've called it a scoring rubric. It's adapted from a risk management tool. But maybe for those of us who are less into this uh, field, Nora, you might just give us a little rundown. What is FMEA and how does that help us if we're reporting the findings of these simulations? Sure. So FMEA stands for Failure Mode and Effect Analysis. It's a risk assessment tool that's endorsed by um, IHI and AHRQ. And often it's used by um, quality um, groups or the quality department at an institution to uh, prioritize and categorize latent safety threats. So some institutions use it um, during RCA um, events, and that's how they categorize the findings. Um, so we chose to use this as a way to prioritize what we found. Um, and it's a scoring rubric um, that's on a four-point Likert scale. Uh, and this way we could the, give a report to leaders um, that was categorized and prioritized by level of threat uh, so that they did, they could be geared towards what um, opportunities for improvement they needed to focus on. Yeah, thank you. I think that's very useful. Um, the other group who I know have published on this is uh, Melanie Barlow and her group, also in advances in simulation, about the uh, new facilities testing at the Mater Hospital in Brisbane. So I think this is starting to become a tool that many people are using. So, uh, And just again for listeners, that's free on the website there in advances in simulation as one of the additional files. So one of the things that I think is uh, sort of interesting here is, and it's always a problem when you're trying to practice sort of guidelines, best practice, um, how though did you balance the concept of standardization versus the idea that everyone that approaches this will have some slightly different context or maybe massively different context that they're doing this in? Uh, how did that shape your thoughts about what you put in the article? So that's a great question. And I think that's why we felt like we needed to anchor our testing objectives into something that would provide standardization across all the clinical uh, areas that we were testing. So we actually tested 15 distinct clinics within this um, advanced pediatric center. Um, but we knew that each clinic would have really different needs and their clinical context would vary greatly depending on what area we were testing. So we used um, something called these evidence-based safe design principles, which are based on evidence-based design, uh, which is used in architecture. If I kind of equate it to evidence-based medicine. Um, so these are design features that are known to impact healthcare outcomes. Uh, so this provided the framework for our testing. So we could vary the clinical context, but use these evidence-based safe design principles as the framework for testing um, so that that provided some consistency throughout all of the clinical areas. And then you could really tailor the clinical context to meet those testing objectives so that this type of work can be applied to um, a small facility, a renovation, or any type of clinical setting. So you could use it in an outpatient center, inpatient hospital, um, operative area. And so that's how we 
kind of standardize our process, knowing that there was going to be variability in the clinical context. Yeah. And again, this is a worthwhile read for listeners as well, because these are 10 uh, principles. They talk about controlling and eliminating sources of infection. They talk about environmental hazards. There's a whole range of things in there. And I think, though, even more fundamentally, it's an example of making sure that we are aligning with tools and processes that folks from other fields already are using and which probably have a history of uh, developing rather than just thinking as healthcare professionals, we can make it up as we go along. And uh, I, I think it's a good example of how we do learn from those uh, other fields. I might just take a little divergence here uh, and, Sue, ask your opinion because you did your project uh, back in about 2012, I think, and you didn't have the benefit of Nora's uh, article then. Uh, are there things that reading that now you think you would do differently? Uh, there we go. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would create a time machine so that I could use Nora te- Nora's team's paper and, uh, as a how-to guide, um, but no, really... At the time, as you mentioned, in 2011, when we started planning um, the hospital, uh, the concept of uh, system integrations, or as uh, Nora's article goes, simulation-based clinical systems testing, it was in its infancy. There was relatively few papers or publications available and that focused on this new type of simulation training. So if I was to do something differently, um, really, we identified that we lacked that consistent evaluation framework in the team evaluations. We collected metrics and data points, but reporting outcomes and sharing lessons learned were never, uh, they really never left the zonal leadership. And uh, this was especially noted uh, when a design element uh, that we had actually for Self Health Campus was a two story waterfall display, which was absolutely beautiful, but it was shut down uh, shortly before, uh, before opening because IPNC had raised, or infection control had raised uh, concerns in regards to contamination issues. And uh, two years later, we encountered the same design element in a new rural hospital that we helped commission. So um, definitely that sharing of lessons learned and that reporting out, um, that was a piece that we missed. And uh, we definitely saw it uh, within Alberta afterwards. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. That's um, nice to sort of see the tangible uh, face of what we've been talking about. Okay, so there's a couple of specific things I'm interested in uh, talking about. One is uh, the role of debriefing, which uh, Nora brought up, and the other is the role of patients and families in this process. But I want to come back to this debriefing uh, approach. And Sue, reading your paper, you, I think, had people involved that came from using simulation as an educational tool. Uh, You've written here about the PEARLS framework. Uh, Give us a little sense of how you approach those debriefs, given that obviously there's a slightly different purpose to them here. Absolutely. Um, Thanks for asking. I think that um, what we slowly realized is is, is that that, um, as we refer back to in the paper about the SEEPs uh, categories, um, but Really debriefing for um, these type of uh, commissioning simulations um, is looking at the system. So really in your in your pre-brief and in also uh, in the start of your debrief, we had to keep going back to that it wasn't about the medicine. The medicine was just a catalyst um, for uh, us to test the system. And so it wasn't, a, um, we were really looking at, you know, if it was a cord prolapse, did they know the way to find uh, to the, uh, the transfer elevators or the transport routes? Um, so it really is, is that bringing it back to the systems lens of it. 
Um, also, is, is is that that theming of categories that we we started to identify that there's lots of things in regards to you know staffing and roles and, that are very similar to regular uh, debriefings for uh, clinical testing, but more of the environmental aspects that we had to start theming out and uh, with uh, transport routes and communications. We had new uh, new vendor uh, voiceras, which were broadcast systems that every staff was aware of was to wear, but really is is that we had to look at, you know, what did that process look like for calling for help? How was it different? And um, did they have enough? Um, we found that vendor training was lacking in a lot of these new equipment and systems that we, we put in. Um, so it really is, is that we kept refocusing the debriefings uh, back to the system and not an individual performance. Yes, and uh, I think it's a tribute to you because it's quite difficult to do and I think a lot of people have a preformed idea about simulation and so when they turn up they think it's going to be an educational experience for them rather than them uh, purely helping out to test the system. Uh, you made reference to this, Nora, and I wonder if you could expand on it a little more because, again, in your paper, and as you said, you've got some different approaches across the group who were involved, uh, but give us a little sense about how did you prepare people to manage these conversations? So um, like Sue mentioned, I think the biggest challenge is kind of is getting people to circle back to the process and the environment. Um, they Everyone's really used to talking about medical management, but it's really important during debriefing to maintain the focus on the system. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that we did differently in our debriefing is used a much more facilitated guided approach um, to bring people back to the goal of testing. Um, and we needed to do a lot of pre-brief work uh, in order to maintain that focus because I think participants can easy, easily get derailed and focus on um, management and some other things that maybe are not, you can't change or um, especially depending on what kind of time frame you're in in terms of your testing, like maybe it's too late to change room sizes or things like that. And so you really have to keep the participants focused on the topic. Um, and so we really use these um, HRQ and Center for Healthcare Design principles to keep the topics focused and use facilitator guided questions to get the participants to really think about systems in terms of their environment. So we asked a lot of questions about um, workflow efficiency and what is the risk to patient safety? Um, what is the risk to staff injury? Um, are there risks to cross-contamination, staff fatigue? Things that uh, staff, they work around in their current environment. They don't really think about. They just if things are inefficient, they just make it work. But we had the opportunity to make things more efficient. And so you really had to ask questions in a very specific and tailored way to elicit useful feedback from the participants. Yep. And the people doing the debriefing, were they the same people who you would normally have uh, doing your educationally focused debriefings? Or did you have a broader, more diverse group? So we actually had a pretty narrow group, um, myself and Kieran Habar, who's the senior author on this paper. Um, we were the only ones that did debriefing for this type of testing because we had done so, mo so much work studying um, the evidence-based design framework. Uh, we facilitated the debriefings for the entire project. 
Wow, that would have kept you busy for a little while. Uh, the other little niche area that I did want to talk about was the role of patients and families, healthcare consumers in this process. And it seems to me, I'll I again stick with you for a minute here, Nora, but you had some quite uh, dedicated ways of doing that at a few different phases. But it would seem to me this is probably critical and yet it's been historically overlooked. Yeah, I think it's really important. Um, we had family engagement um, that was really essential to um, this type of testing uh, because I think we make a lot of assumptions as healthcare providers about what it's like for families to be in the space, um, and we don't think of our environment in the same from the same perspective that families think of them. Uh, so it was really important for us to um, incorporate families. Um, it was really important for us to incorporate other ancillary um, teams like quality improvement team accreditation because people utilize the space in different ways or see their environment in different ways, depending on what kind of role they play in healthcare. So kind of getting that multidisciplinary team together to have a really um, varied perspective was important for testing. Yeah, fantastic. And Sue, uh, again, because you focused on both clinical and non-clinical areas, uh, you have a lot of people other than just doctors and nurses doing what they do. Your, your approach was pretty comprehensive as well. How did you find the approach to working with uh, patients, consumers and others? There we go. Um, I, absolutely. Um, when the hospital was actually designed, they had a, a team called the, the CAT team or the Citizen Advisory uh, Team members. And they actually were involved in uh, giving feedback for design of the hospital from a family perspective. And um, we then um, utilized those people when we started to run some of the, the basic code blue scenarios, um, because one of the, the concepts or, or the foundational pillars that we had for self-health was is that um, patient family centered care was was super important. Um, design was based on like we have actual um, um, overnight beds uh, in the window wells for families to stay with us. So um, we wanted to be able to uh, use those guys uh, and, and those um, those that the patient lens from the families um, within our simulation. So we used them as embedded participants. So they were family members or they were parents and um, just really made sure that we were able to, in the debriefing, um, get them to say what it, what it felt like. Um, the feedback that we got from them was amazing. Um, they felt uh, so privileged uh, to be sharing. Uh, they loved the aspect that we were actually training together as a team and learning from each other, and also that the fact that we were listening to them. And I think that was the message that really, um, really spoke to me. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm going to start um, bringing our discussion to a close, but I just wanted to give a little bit of my summary and then ask you both for anything additional that you would give in terms of advice to our listeners thinking about embarking on this. But I'm going to uh, sort of come back to the framework from Nora and her team's paper. And so if we think about doing this, we want to, A, take a deep breath because this is not something we can do lightly. Uh, we're going to think about who needs to be involved and that may be a more diverse group than we've thought. We're going to think hard about, well, what are the processes that we really need to look at? What are we relying on uh, at the moment? Where are we starting from? And then hopefully design scenarios that very effectively test those systems. Uh, we're going to need some pretty good methods experts in terms of actually running simulations, and that might include some 
much more so-called boring sims than we're used to if we do simulation for resuscitation, but literally we want to be modelling everyday work. And I think the other take-home that I've really had here is that we probably do need to take a slightly different approach to our debriefing and how we then uh, evaluate and report what we've found. So they're my kind of takeaways, but I'm going to ask you both, uh, you know, do you have some extra pieces of advice that you might give our Simulcast listeners who want to test out systems or processes on small or large scales? I'll start with you, Sue. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think that what speaks to me mostly with uh, the systems approach uh, really is, is this whole movement parallels, uh, parallels the debriefing community probably 10 years ago. Debriefing was always around, um, but the difference 10 years ago is we had some leaders uh, like Chang, Rudolph, Reimer, Deepin, and come together and do create a collective language and create courses and education around it. I really see the next 10 years using systems integrations of us coming together, using simulations to be proactive, uh, realizing the importance and value of organizing simulation to test processes and spaces. This should be, you know, if they say, hey, we're going to be redesigning something or we're going to be opening something, um, simulation uh, and simulationists need to be at the table. Um, and I just, again, from what Nora has uh, and her group have created is, is that that sharing of documents and checklists uh, and really just the, the early adopters to build on these concepts of system integration simulations. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Nora, would you like to venture your uh, additional thoughts for our listeners? Sure. I completely agree with um, everything that Sue said. I think there we have the opportunity to use simulation to really shape how healthcare systems are built and tested in the future, um, being able to identify latent safety threats and mitigate risk prior to patient exposure is so important. Um, I would say the one thing as systems and institutions are thinking about doing this work is to really ensure that you have the adequate time frame to do it. Um, implementing testing with enough time between um, the end of facility planning and when the facility actually opens is so important. You really want to give teams enough time to conduct the simulations and then time to really evaluate opportunities for improvement and devise solutions um, before the, uh, the facility actually opens for patient care. Absolutely. And in your template there, you know, these phases uh, take weeks to months and sometimes many months. So uh, I think that's a timely warning, not something you can just do the week before you open. Uh, all right. Well, Simulcast listeners, uh, I hope you found this as edifying as I have. But just a reminder, those two articles in Advances in Simulation uh, by Carver and Barnes and by Coleman and team, uh, definitely worth a read. Some excellent examples in there, some definitely great resources in there to think about using. But also, I assume this will be the start of further work that builds on that already done by our two guests today. So I'm going to take the opportunity to thank you both very much uh, for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for having me. All right, my pleasure. And uh, thanks very much. This is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast. <laughs>